Good morning. I'm Dave Heinrichs. I'm one of the pastors here. Just welcome to everyone here this long weekend. Thanks for coming to church and thank you for joining us online. And we are continuing our series in the book of Daniel, which I don't know about you, but has crazy stories in it so far, eh? Like they're, these are fantastic stories. They're just like strange stories, but I don't know if you're finding them entertaining, but they are definitely not boring. So today we're picking it up in Daniel chapter 5. Before we open up that up, uh, just tell you about when Andrew and I first got married, she introduced me to something. It's called uh, Bard on the Beach. Anybody else been to Bard on the Beach before? If you haven't, Bard is a Shakespearean festival that happens in an open-air theater down in Vancouver's Vanier Park. And from the first time that I attended one of these plays, I was hooked. I loved it. And if you're familiar with Shakespeare, you'll know that most of his stories, they fall into one of two categories. They are either comedies or they're tragedies. And I much prefer to go and see the comedies because they're more fun. They leave you feeling good when you leave the theater. Comedies allow us a little bit of reprieve from the own difficult things that we're facing in our own lives. And you aren't forced to contemplate the deeper meaning of a comedy like you are a sermon. I mean, a tragedy. They can be the same thing. You see, more than just a sad story with a depressing ending, a successful tragedy has the ability to evoke feelings in us, especially feelings of pity and fear. But the aim, Aristotle writes, is that spectators can be purged of these emotions and leave the theater feeling cleansed and uplifted with a heightened awareness and understanding of the ways of gods and men. Now, I'm not sure I've ever felt uplifted or cleansed of the feelings of pity and fear when I have left the theater, but I have walked away with an increased awareness of the impact of human behavior, along with a greater alertness to the presence of God in our world. And I think that's why we need to pay close attention to tragedies, like the one that we're looking at today in Daniel chapter 5. This story probably won't have us feeling uplifted as we leave this morning. But if we allow it to, we can learn from the demise of a king who failed because he didn't pay attention to the tragedies of the past or consider the ways of God. And if we are to avoid tragic endings ourselves, then Daniel 5 tells us that we need to honor the God who holds our lives in his hands. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 5. Beginning at verse 1. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. Suddenly... The finger of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote 
and his face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. And the king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain hung around his neck. And he will be made uh, the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the story of the king and his nobles, the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom, that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. <laughs> so... Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means... You will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty, the most high God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped from his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all the kingdoms on the earth and sets above them anyone that he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven, you had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hands your life and all your ways. Therefore, he has sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Many, many. Tekel, Parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered your days and your reign and brought of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. 
That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Wow. So in this story, we are introduced to a new character that we haven't seen so far in this story. His name is King Belshazzar. And this story takes place many years after the reign and the death of King Nebuchadnezzar. In the story, Nebuchadnezzar is referred to as Belshazzar's father. However, Belshazzar's father actually is King Nabonidus, who is the last reigning empire over Babylon. By referring to Nebuchadnezzar as Belshazzar's father, it's just simply saying that it's, he's an ancestor or he's the predecessor. Belshazzar isn't even exactly a king. His father was the actual king, and Belshazzar himself, he's just a regent, which means a co-regent. It means he's second in command. He was placed in charge of the capital city of Babylon during a 10-year absence from the capital by his father, King Nabonidus, who is likely off defending the kingdom from the threat of the advancing Persians under Cyrus, who we will find out more about in coming weeks. At the beginning of this story, Belshazzar, he is giving this great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, the Bible says. Now, the king is likely throwing this feast, knowing that a war will soon be upon them. So this party, it probably had political, military purposes to it. It was to rally the support and encourage these leaders for the upcoming battle that they would face. And this is likely why Belshazzar orders that these goblets from the temple in Jerusalem be brought in so he and his wives and concubines and the nobles can drink from them. Back in Daniel chapter 1, verse 2, we're told that uh, when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem and he took the people from Jerusalem into exile, he also took some of the articles from the temple of Yahweh and brought them and put them in the temple of his God. But these were more than just spoils of war. This is more than just loot for his coffers. When a nation invaded an enemy and pilfered their enemy's temple of sacred articles, such as these goblets, this was seen as spiritual warfare. This was basically tantamount to the conquering nations being strong, their God being stronger than the defeated nation's deity. So when Belshazzar brings out these goblets, they, that were dedicated to the worship of Yahweh, he's got propaganda purposes in mind. By using them, he would be reminding the nobles of how powerful Babylon once was, how it defeated Jerusalem, and in effect, how the gods of Babylon, Marduk and Nabu, were more powerful than Yahweh, and how in the upcoming battle with their, their new foe, that these gods would also be on their side. Not only that, but perhaps by using these articles that Nebuchadnezzar thought were either too precious or perhaps he was too scared to use, Belshazzar is also making a statement about himself, that he is, you know, more powerful than perhaps even the great Nebuchadnezzar in his attempts to rally the support of these nobles. Not only are his actions arrogant, But by using these sacred goblets in the way that he does, he also commits the sin of idolatry and blasphemy. Now, blasphemy is when we dishonor God through our speech or our actions. 
Belshazzar does this when he misuses the sacred objects intended for the worship of God for a common purpose like this dinner party. Certainly there would have been enough common goblets and wine glasses to go around for everyone. He commits idolatry when he uses them to toast or to praise the gods of gold and silver, wood, stone, and bronze. Theologian Tremper Longman says that Belshazzar's actions are basically like spitting in God's face using God's holy goblets to toast the lifeless idols of his own religion, which is ridiculous because the gods that he toasts are made of the same material as the goblets. It's at this point that something really strange happens where this hand appears out of nowhere and it begins to write these words on the banquet hall wall and this terrifies the king. Just as in a previous in the previous chapters where King Nebuchadnezzar has these dreams that terrify him. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar calls in the Babylonian wise men to interpret the words with this promise of a great reward to the one who is able to give him the understanding. And once again, the Babylonian wise men are found to be incompetent. But a solution is found. In verses 10 to 12, we read that uh, the queen tells Belshazzar about Daniel. Now, this queen is probably not Belshazzar's wife, right? Because it, the text already told us that his wives and concubines, they're already at the party and they're drinking and toasting these other gods. So most likely, this is the queen mother. This is probably, uh, you know, one of the wives of a king before him. It could even be Nitocris, who is Nebuchadnezzar's wife. Unlike Belshazzar, though, the queen has wisely remembered the past and recalls that Daniel was able to interpret dreams and to solve difficult problems for Nebuchadnezzar. So Belshazzar concedes to having this long-forgotten advisor to the former king brought in. It's then that we see this exchange between Daniel and the king that's quite different from the one that we looked at last week when we looked at Daniel chapter 4. You may recall there that Daniel seems sympathetic to Nebuchadnezzar. He even, you know, begs him to repent, to turn from his wicked ways, and, and says, you know, I hope that this judgment that's foretold for you won't happen. But in this story, Daniel seems to lack any sort of compassion for this king. Why is that? I think a close reading of the text shows us that Belshazzar's attitude towards Daniel, it's condescending. This mic is just giving me fits here. Hold on a sec. There we go, hopefully. So let's look at the text. When Daniel appears last week, or in the last chapter, before Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4, the king addressed him as the chief of the magicians when he comes in. He says, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me what it means, for none of my wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can. And in today's chapter, Belshazzar says, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, then you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Do you see how Belshazzar identifies Daniel primarily as a captive, reminding him of his place? 
And then rather than endorsing Daniel like Nebuchadnezzar did, or even like the queen saying, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, that you have insight, and you can interpret this like Nebuchadnezzar did, Belshazzar instead says, well, I've heard these things about you, and if you can, he's skeptical. He has low expectations of Daniel. And Daniel hasn't missed these slights. His response seems to display annoyance and dislike for Belshazzar compared to the respect and the concern that he had for Nebuchadnezzar. This exchange also highlights for us how Belshazzar is just full of contempt. He's disdainful towards Daniel here, just as he was in his actions using these sacred goblets revealed his disrespect for Yahweh. Rather than honor the God who holds Belshazzar's life in his hands, this king continues to reveal the extent of his condescending attitude. In verse 17, Daniel then refuses the rewards that the king offers, which are pretty substantial at that. By offering Daniel the place of third highest rank in the kingdom, that's only one spot below Belshazzar himself, which remember, he's second place being the co-regent of Babylon. Now, perhaps Daniel refuses them because he knows that they're going to be short-lived, but I don't think so. I think Daniel refuses these because he's not motivated by worldly pleasures or pursuits. And rather than looking to please himself or others, Daniel is looking to honor God, whom he trusts holds his life in his hands, rather than looking to please this hostile king who may have him killed for giving the dreadful interpretation that he does. Daniel begins by reminding Belshazzar of the events that unfolded in the last chapter. How God humbled Nebuchadnezzar, causing him to live like an animal because of his pride, until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that of Yahweh's sovereignty, until he recognized heaven ruled. That story seems like a comedy, especially when you compare it to how tragically this one ends. But that story has significance, and its importance should not be lost on us like it was on Belshazzar. In verse 22 and 23, Daniel delivers this stinging indictment. He says, You, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. You knew all of this, and instead you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. Belshazzar knew better. He knew the judgment that befell Nebuchadnezzar, and as Aristotle said, that should have left him with a heightened understanding of the ways of God. And many times I have heard or even used the excuse myself, I didn't know. I didn't know to rationalize why I shouldn't be held responsible for certain actions or behaviors. But often when we suggest we don't know, It's just not true. We have plenty of examples all around us and throughout history from which we can learn from, but often we just choose to ignore these things. Many people feel like God is unfair in holding people responsible for honoring him, and they will claim as well, well, I didn't know. But Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities His eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. There are plenty of stories throughout history. 
There's many people who have given testimony, and we have the extraordinary signs in all of creation that indicates that there is a God and that we can know him. And the Bible tells us that God eagerly desires to know us too. In 1 Timothy 2, it says, God our Savior wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has gone out of his way to great lengths to make himself known to us. Besides creation, he's given us the scriptures. He sent his son Jesus. He created the church and then sent them out. But like Belshazzar, people often don't want to humble themselves and we just choose to ignore these things. But what we cannot say is, I didn't know. It doesn't hold water. We are without excuse. But we're not without hope. We can be forgiven. We can be forgiven for ignoring God. We can be forgiven for dishonoring God when we rebel or when we do our own thing. And God is eager to forgive us. 1 John 1 says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And and righteousness in the Bible, it's, it means a right relationship with God. So he will purify us from, from our broken relationship with him. He will restore it. He's eager to do that for us. So today, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to know the creator of the universe, then I invite you, confess your sins. Put your trust in the saving work of Jesus, God's Son. This is the way that we honor the God who holds our lives in his hands. And Daniel's message to Belshazzar is that he knew enough from this God's past dealings with the former king to avoid the kind of turmoil that he was facing by acting accordingly. It was obvious that he should have been humble, that he should have honored God who holds his life in his hands. But instead, Belshazzar becomes arrogant, recklessly using these sacred goblets dedicated to Yahweh, and in so doing, Belshazzar sets himself up against the Lord of heaven. So then the judgment comes down. And in the final part of this passage, Daniel reads these words on the wall and gives the verdict. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Now these words in and of themselves would not have been difficult to understand by either the Babylonian wise men, if they were able to read however they were inscripted, or Daniel. In their noun form, they are simply units of money or weights of measurements of weights. Mene is a mina, tekel is a shekel, and parson is half a shekel. As verbs, they're understood as numbered, weighed, and divided. But it's understanding the riddle or the prophecy that's beneath these words that sets Daniel apart from these wise men. And it's also the swift fulfillment and judgment that happens that vindicates Daniel's interpretation that it comes directly from God. God has numbered Belshazzar's days and he is bringing them to an end because his life has been weighed out and he is found wanting. God has judged Belshazzar. And he is insufficient. What seems to make this story even more of a tragedy 
is that there doesn't seem to be this opportunity for Belshazzar to even repent, right? Like Daniel doesn't urge him like he did in the last chapter with Nebuchadnezzar, like turn from your wicked ways. Why not? That's what makes this story so difficult, just full of tension. It's not an exciting passage to get up to preach. And I don't know why. We can't speculate from silence what was or what wasn't said in that throne room. And in the final analysis, the answer lies in the sovereign decision of God. I will say this, though. The Bible has plenty of verses like the one that I quoted last week from Ezekiel 33:11, which says that as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. And there are also examples in the Bible, lots of examples, where people are confronted with their sin, with impending judgment that's coming upon them, and they're not given a call to repentance, but they take it upon themselves to repent, and then God withholds or mitigates the judgment that he threatened them with, like the Ninevites did when Jonah came and said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. There was no call to repentance there, and the whole city repented, right? They wore sackcloth. They put ashes on their head. And God did not bring upon them the destruction that he had promised. Just because we don't read of a call to repentance or see the prospect of averting the disaster in the text does not mean that God hasn't offered grace to Belshazzar like he did with the Ninevites. And I believe that this path would have been open to him. I just don't think he would have taken it. And that's the end of his story. That night, he's killed, and a new regime is ushered in. But we would be irresponsible if, like Belshazzar, we didn't learn a few things from his story, from this tragedy. Again, tragedies should leave us with a heightened understanding of the ways of God and men. And so what have we learned? Well, first... Like Belshazzar, God has numbered our days as well, and our lives will be judged, and we will be weighed out on the heavenly scales, and, spoiler alert, we will all be found wanting. But the good news of Jesus is that even though his story seemed like a tragedy, the crucifixion of the Son of God, it's actually a victory, and it's our victory, right? It gives us hope. His death pays our debt for failing to honor God with our lives, and it gives us this right standing before him, and his resurrection from the dead is the down payment of our promised eternal life. The gospel says that this is our inheritance if we trust in Jesus by having humility and honoring him with our lives and by following him. And this is great news, but this is also a warning First, it's a warning to those who choose not to trust and follow Christ. I think especially for those who've had an opportunity growing up in Christian families or attending church, right? They've heard the stories. They've they've witnessed these things. Now, certainly Christian families and churches can misrepresent Jesus and can become stumbling blocks to people. But as we already heard, we're without excuse And, you know, this morning when I was thinking about this passage and and this warning, 
It reminded me of a relative of mine who, despite growing up in a Christian home, having plenty of examples of gracious and thoughtful Christians in their life, continues to display disdain towards the gospel, even contempt towards God on social media and stuff. And I fear for them. Like, so this morning I wake up and I'm praying for softened hearts. And I think that's what it should lead us to do, is we need to pray. We need to pray for those people that we love who are in our families and our friends who've grown up near the church, or maybe they haven't. We need to pray for them, that the Spirit would do a great work in them, humble their hearts, and that they would turn and trust God and honor Him. But the second warning is for those of us who identify ourselves as Christians, but despite knowing better, will not also humble ourselves and honor God, particularly in the area of not forgiving others. Remember, Belshazzar's sin was blasphemy and idolatry. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, then your Father will not forgive your sins. When we refuse to forgive other people, we're not just dishonoring God. We're basically telling, we know better than you, God, and we're placing ourselves above him. And that's idolatry. And blasphemy is when we dishonor God through our speech and actions, and particularly when we misuse sacred objects intended for the worship of God. You get that? It's when we misuse sacred objects intended for the worship of God. And nothing, friends, is more sacred to God than those objects who bear his image. People, men and women made in his image, made to worship him. You know, a long time ago, I, another church, I served on the church board. And we were looking for an individual to fulfill a leadership position in the church. And uh, a certain young dad came to our minds. We thought, oh, he would be great. And I knew him. and I knew he would be eager to jump at the opportunity to do it. But there was a board, an older board member who was serving with us who said, no. He vetoed it. I refuse. And I was like shocked, right? Like, why? Why why not him? And he said, well, seven years ago, that man's wife said something to my wife that insulted her, and I'll never forget it. And I was shocked. Like, I knew all of them, and I was like, I, like I'll mediate with you guys. Like, let, let's go to them and talk about this. I'm sure they have no idea that this happened and that they would be quick to make make things better, to make up, confident that they would smooth it over. But the older board member, he declined, not only to forgive, but to even take the chance to reconcile. And then later that evening, when we were in the parking lot leaving, he came over to me again, you know, just to explain himself, you know, saying to me why he wouldn't reconcile. But I implored him again and again, saying, the whole point of the gospel is forgiveness. This is the whole reason why Jesus came to do this for us. And he tells us that we have to do this for others. But again, he refused. And that 
is a tragedy. If you do not forgive others your, their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When we refuse to forgive others, then we are guilty of blasphemy. As Christians, it's incumbent upon us to forgive. We either, you know, approach individuals, we try to reconcile them. If we're not willing to go for whatever reason is, then we need to approach the altar before Jesus and ask him to help us to lay our unforgiveness on the altar. And Lord Jesus, would you take this up from us? Would you please help us to forgive? And this may take many, many, many times over and over asking Jesus to help us to forgive, to move forward. And we may have to do it more times than we like. But we can no longer hold our unforgiveness over other people. If you want to honor the God who holds your life in his hands, then you need to forgive and love those who are made in his image. In 1 John 4, it says, we love because he first loved us. He first loved you. That's why we love. And whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen and he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. And I think that's the challenge for us, Calvary Baptist Church, from this passage. That we are to honor and love our God by forgiving and loving one another. And this is not easy, but we can do it, right? We can do this because as the passage says, he first loved us. And so he will help us. He holds our very lives in his hands. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your love for us. I pray that you would give us wisdom and help us to be alert, Lord. Help us to learn from this story, unlike Belshazzar, who did not learn from the past. Thank you that we have the opportunity, that you have written these things down, that your word is alive and active and that it will pierce our hearts. And I just pray that you as the great physician would uh, do a transplant in our lives, remove any part of our hearts that are made of stone and give us a heart of flesh, one that longs to, to follow you the way you're calling us to. I pray that you would help us to love others to forgive as we have been forgiven. And we thank you so much for your grace in our lives. Would we be able to pour that grace out upon others, those that we meet? And we specifically pray this morning for those in our lives who don't know you, or maybe they have, but they have walked away. We pray, Lord, that you would soften their hearts, that you would draw them back to you, that may come to know the love and the hope that we have in Jesus. Oh, Jesus, that is the desire of our hearts. Would you... Help us to be people who are good news people, that you would send us out in peace to represent you well. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.